What's up, everybody? Welcome. Welcome to the Artist of Data Science Happy Hour. It is Friday, January 7th, 2022. Another year, man. Brand new year. Hopefully, you guys had an amazing holiday break. Happy New Year to y'all. Um, thanks again for, for hanging out with me on the, uh, the, the end of the season little event we had going on there. But yeah, man, it was, it was good to... Uh, Get to get to get off camera, man, for a couple of weeks. <laughs> I uh, uh, it, it's it's odd when every single conversation you have is recorded and shared with the world for all to see, and it, it feels good just uh, being able to not be on camera for a couple of weeks. So that was great, recharging, refreshing. Um, hopefully you guys had an amazing, amazing uh time off as well. Shout out to Russell, Ken, Vin. What's going on? Al Bellamy's in the house. Naresh, Alyssa, and Mr. H. Dude, super excited for uh, for y'all to, to, to be here. So hopefully you got a chance to tune into the Comet uh, office hours that was hosted on Wednesday. We had our good friend of the show, uh, Christian Captavel, was uh, in the building. We talked about pretty much um, you know, kind of how to translate a business problem to machine learning data science problem uh, as part of an eight-week series that we're doing at Comet, uh, and it's all about standardizing the experiment. Um, hopefully, you guys could, could join. Let me just uh, read off a few of the events that we're having. Uh, I'm putting in a lot of work for this. I'm super excited for, for what we got planned. Um, but yeah, we're, you know, first session kicked off to finding business impact with machine learning projects. Uh, we're coming in on Wednesday talking about how to define scope and success criteria for your machine learning projects, uh, and then how to tell if you've built a good machine learning model or not. We've got to uh, interview with the community member. And then on uh, January 26th, understanding, validating, versioning, engineering your data. So we're talking to Jimmy from Pachyderm. Uh, we're talking to Abe from Superconductive, also known as Great Expectations, and community member Matt Blaza. That is going to be fun. Uh, then we're doing another roundtable discussion on February 2nd with a good friend of the show, uh, Jonathan Atuli, with uh, also Susan Shu Chang. If you guys don't know Susan, dude, she's awesome. Like that, that's somebody who I really, really um, look up to and respect in the, in the field. She's just She's a proper artist of data science. Susan, I'm excited to have you on the show. And then also W. Ronnie Huang, who's at Google, he's a research scientist at Google, will be a, a great conversation. Uh, we've also got a, another panel discussion happening on February 9th. Um, a couple of awesome folks that will be, will be joining us. Um, I'm excited for that. So we've got uh, Tiffany and Eddie. Um, they're both principal, senior level, you know, team lead data scientists. We're going to be talking about experiment management and uh, how it can make your life easier. And then finally, we're going to close off by uh, bringing on some in-house experts talking about the last mile of machine learning and beyond. Uh, so it's going to be great. I'm, I'm super pumped for this series. Every Wednesday, 10.30 a.m. Central Time, uh, right here on, on LinkedIn. You can catch it on YouTube as well. Everything is recorded and will be shared for you. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited, man. It's been been a lot of work going into this. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pumped for it. We're also doing um, a, a series starting in March that's all going to be about deep learning for structured data. Um, so I think a lot of times people might just think deep learning is only for unstructured data like text and images and sound and things like that. Uh, but we're going to see applications of deep learning for just regular tabular data that you get from a relational database. That's going to be a lot of fun. I'm excited to put together the curriculum for that. Uh, as as always, everything is completely open, completely free. All the blog posts, all the write-ups, everything unmetered on Medium. You guys can uh, go ahead and and follow along um so do do join me man it's gonna be fun uh so that's enough self-promotion uh enough paying the bills how y'all how y'all doing man 2022 man shout out to mikiko mikiko's in the building 
So let's, let, how do we want to kick this conversation off? If you guys got questions on, on LinkedIn or on YouTube, please do let me know. I'll be monitoring the chat and comment section on both of those. Why don't we, why don't we start off by what we're looking forward to this, this year? Uh, Makiko, what are you looking forward to in 2022? So rather than making the same mistakes every year of doing 10 goals, uh, I decide to do four um, that were just the most impactful, like would be, I don't know. I, I, the last couple of years, I've been realizing that a lot of my efforts have been kind of the 80-20, only in reverse, where it's like 80% of my efforts were kind of like only driving 20% of whatever. Um, so I think my four sort of focus areas or four intents are uh, health, money, um, continued to develop into technical leadership is a big one for me. Uh, and the fourth one is thanks to Ken G, I finally got the courage to uh, decide I want to try to, land, uh, try to launch my brand, uh, but first build up um, a YouTube channel and like a content audience. So, um, and I think actually that will be really good. I'm hoping to do, I'm going to start with visible uh, things like jackets and all that. going to move to sneakers. I love sneakers. I love making sneakers. I love designing them. Um, we're kind of figuring out some of the equ equipment we need. Um, and then ideally try to do the bridge between digital and physical fashion. So that's what I'm looking forward to this year. But I still love engineering. I, I, I want to continue developing into that. And I actually had a question for this group about technical leadership and all that. So, you know, I'd love to hear, but those are my four things. Dude, that's it. I love it. Mikiko. I love the way you're yeah. Breaking down the big rocks, four four goals. Uh, I definitely can relate to you on that. Last year, I was just um, I, I tried to do too much and spread too thin, could not do anything. Uh, this year, I'm doing something similar to you, just four big things, but I'm gonna take it one quarter at a time. So quarter number one, got something going on. That's the goal. Then we'll figure out what quarter two, three, and beyond will be as we progress through the year. Um, so look, if, do you guys want to just jump right into Mikiko's question? Like, I do actually genuinely want to hear what you guys um you know, what you guys got planned for, for the new year. Um, so if we can keep it uh, real quick and then we'll get to Makiko's question. Let's go to uh, Eric, Eric Sims. What are you, what are you looking forward to this year? Inadvertently came up with kind of like a three, two, one thing. So I was like, I have three books I want to read because I think I can manage three books in a year, three books, two specific projects. And then I want to, I have a, a music, a one song, like a music project I want to do. That's not, directly data related. And so I'm just excited to do all those things because some of them will help me, you know, on a career level and others are just things I just want to do. And I, I like music and creativity and stuff. And so I've been feeling like the itch to kind of get, get more into that. And so that'll be a fun way I'm trying to bring together, you know, I'm, I, I think, you know, Akira the Dawn, he's really inspiring. And I'm like, I want to do something like that. And like, I think, I think I can, I have the tools to do it. And so I want to, yeah do something like that i love it man shout out to care of the dawn uh, we will be recording soon uh just keep an eye out for that i'll keep you guys posted on that i mean but you could make um the, the this this music thing somewhat data driven ish like you know there's there's deep learning models that can help with uh generative music if you're interested i'll put you in touch with uh with my colleague michael at comet he's actually a generative artist he's a generative musician uh so you know wow. I, I think you guys could have a great conversation if, if you'd like i'll put you guys in touch um 
Oh. But let's uh, let's hear from Russell. Russell, what are you looking forward to? Then after Russell, we'll go to Vin and Ken, and then after that, we'll get into Bakiko's question. Uh, I'm just genuinely curious what everybody's up to. So I've got a kind of a twofold thing. One, you know, I want continued growth in the data sector, both in my knowledge, my network, and the things that I turn around. But given the last two years that we've had, um, I want to also concentrate on something outside of that and increase the whimsy and the gentle irreverence that I employ in my day-to-day life. So try not to be too staid, too serious. And in that vein, I'd like to congratulate you for starting out um, saying doo-doo in your opening monologue there, uh, Harpreet. Uh, you may want to listen back to that. You did say it, uh, and it, you know, I had a little schoolboy giggle. Um, so, yeah, I just want to find the fun in stuff and just, you know, keep doing the good work, but don't look past those fun elements and try and take as much positivity in all angles from everything you do. Yeah, absolutely love that, man. Um, you know, I'm going to do more this year by doing more every day. Let me tell you what more means. More is I'm going to move, I'm going to observe, I'm going to reflect, and I'm going to engage. Keep an eye out for a blog post releasing sometime really next week about that, how you can be more by doing more every day. Uh, Vin, what are you looking forward to this year? Then after Vin, we'll go to Ken and then Makiko's question. Uh, yes, I did say doo-doo in the, uh, you know, I, I tripped up. So uh, do you guys got questions on LinkedIn or here in the chat? Let me know. We'll add you to the queue. Uh, but Vin, let's hear from you. Um, first, I'm turning my all IG account into a Makiko stand when she comes out with those those kicks. It's just going to be an entire stream of me wearing her shoes. That's just like, that's a goal now. Sorry. All the other goals seem to be kind of secondary, but that's a winner. Um, This year I want to be more accessible. I realized last year that I was doing a lot, but a lot of what I was doing wasn't accessible. And so this year I want to be more accessible. I want everything that I'm working on to be more available. I want people to be able to interact with me a little bit better. And I want to, you know, same way, have more access to people that follow me, people that engage with me, people that I work with, clients, you know, just across the board. And so that's been one just centralized theme is accessibility. And the other one is I want to go back to having, I mean, this is kind of like what Russell said. I want to go back to having fun again. There's been, you know, I've kind of had to stiffen up a little bit as I make the move into strategy, as I do more work with C-suiters and board of directors but I kind of want to let go a little bit every once in a while. Cause I was having a whole lot more fun when I was able to be more informal. So uh, that's, it's kind of a dual goal and our pre already knows this one Thor's abs this year. I'm going to get Thor's abs. That's it's happening by May. I will be at a pool in Vegas, just surprising people with my age and abs. I love it. Yeah, I'm also getting Thor's abs, but it'll be a t-shirt. Uh, Ken, go for it. A really, uh, really suitable goal. I like that. Um, we, I think we should all maybe aspire for that. Uh, so I, uh, I had to jot some stuff down because I had to consolidate my thoughts. Uh, the first thing that I'm really excited about and I want to pursue more of this year is like actually seeing people. I mean, I've never met any of you in person and hopefully later in the year that'll become a lot more possible i'm trying to travel a lot more i'm trying to to get out and explore you know it's great to do stuff from behind a computer screen there's a lot of conveniences to it but i think that there's something inherently human about real life social interactions 
I could go on this giant tangent about the metaverse and and those types of things and why I think you know human interaction is so important, but I'll leave that for for another time. Um, it, another thing I'm really trying to do more of this year is is measure myself, like keep track of my goals and my progress and the things that I'm doing. You know, I already keep track of my sleep with my ring. I I was telling Harpreet, I, I just bought a, a blood glucose monitor. I'm trying to track what my blood sugar does after I eat every time. And I think that, you know, for me, just having more data on myself, learning about myself in a quantitative way is a very powerful way to, to understand where I can improve or how I can like optimize or, or, you know, maybe I don't even have to think of these things if I track them in some way uh, in, in, in some other like weird, weird reality that I've created. Um, the last thing runs directly contra to Harpreet, and that is I would like to do less this year. I, I think that I've gotten really into meditation. I've really gotten into this idea that my thoughts kind of come together well when I've given myself some time off. And I, I don't, I obviously don't think this goes directly uh, against what Harpreet's saying, but like having more intention about what I do. And I think I can get more intention by sort of limiting my scope and and narrowing down on, on what I believe to be the most important. So uh, I'm also really trying to focus on like that pure meditation aspect. Uh, that, that to me is something I've read a couple books recently and I'm like, hey, I can tangibly improve my life and my philosophy and my focus and my resilience associated with that. So that's going to be a big priority. Um, I'd like to have fun too, but uh, I think that'll inevitably come. I, I would hope that uh, probably by the other people I work with wished I had less fun at work and was more professional, but hey, <laughs> get what you Thank you, Ken. Yeah, I'd, uh, I highly recommend checking out this. Um, uh, it's it's on, uh, on Spotify, just brief mindfulness of breathing. And that's kind of like the, the guided meditation that, that I listen to. Um, you know, there's an eight minute version and like an 18 minute version um, and just kind of walks through it. it. It's quite nice. So definitely check that out. Uh, right on. So Makiko, let's, let's go to your question. And, uh, you know, if you've got a question on LinkedIn, if you've got a question on YouTube uh, or right here in the chat, let me know and I'll go ahead and I will add you to the queue. Um, after Makiko, we got a question from uh, Kadisha coming in from YouTube. So Kadisha, sit tight. We'll get to your question. Uh, but Makiko, go for it. Yeah, so I guess the question I have in my head is uh, the ladder into technical leadership. I have bookmark Vin's blog posts on, I, I have that, I do have it. And, and I started reading it. Um, and I also have uh, like Will Larson's like staff engineer path to staff book. But um, I guess I'm just trying to understand what are, what are the main transition points between going from someone who's like junior slash engineering slash sort of senior, maybe a fake senior engineer um, to like staff to technical leadership um, as opposed to management. I have a lot of people I consider mentors in my life who are trying to push me a little bit more towards the people management, business management side. And uh, perversely, because I love making life harder for myself, I obviously don't want to go there because I'm okay at it. I'm decent at it. Hence, it's not interesting. Um, so the technical leadership side, it's it feels very elusive because I see examples of people who like, they have the great technical chops, but they're not really good at interacting with people. 
and they don't really have a mind for strategy and yet they're there. <laughs> not, not my current company, but I've seen this at other companies, right? Like not my current company, just in case anyone's watching now. Um, but in various like contexts, right? Like I've seen a different mix of skills or whatever. And I guess I'm just trying to determine for myself, like how do I bridge that gap knowing that it's like a, probably a two, three year gap. Like, I don't think it's something I can just kind of, you know, clinch in the year. I think it's probably going to be a little bit of a longer term goal. So would love to hear, you know, various thoughts, opinions, um, you know, what people, what skills people think are important, uh, experiences, you know, what do those conversations look like? Uh, and even just the general of, should I continue doing stuff that I'm really bad at and trying to get better at it? Or should I be leveraging and doubling down more on my strengths? Because that's a very common advice we tell people. But for some reason, I seem not interested in my strengths. So, yeah, I would love to hear opinions. I'd love to hear some opinions too. I definitely want to go to, uh, to, to Vin for this one, but I could definitely relate to you, Makiko. Like if you would have asked me maybe just a year ago what I wanted to do, I would be like, yeah, I want to be like a director of data science. Like I wanted to manage people. And then I got in a position where I started managing people. I'm like, this is, I do not like this. Uh, this is like, this is not, it's not fun. Because um, I, I don't feel like I, yeah, I, it, it, it's like this romanticized notion for me. And then when I actually got to do it and, you know, reading all these books and like thinking I know how to do it, then I'm like, I, I just don't like doing it. Um, but yeah, anyways, let's go to Vin uh, to hear from him. Uh, Makiko, I'm going to find a link to, uh, for you. I was listening to a podcast earlier this week. It was called junior to senior software engineer, junior to senior software uh, developer, something I'll, I'll post the link here, but Vin, let's hear from you. Yeah, I think, you know, just Harpreet, to your point, leading great teams and leading teams of people that are eh, iffy, it's different kinds of leadership. And if your first leadership gig is an awesome team, like leadership, all of a sudden seems kind of cooler because it, a lot of the things that are not obvious that you need to be doing with low performing teams they're obvious with high performing teams. Like it almost leads itself and you kind of learn with a high performing team, how to lead because they know how to lead themselves. And they, in a lot of ways, just by being amazing and being high performing, they almost teach you how to lead. And so, you know, don't necessarily say I hated it because my first team didn't work out. It may just be that you are not that kind of leader. And that's the, that's really important. If you're going to do Thank you. If you're going to do um, like a, a how do you lead, you know, or how do you figure out if you want to lead? Step one is figure out what kind of leader you want to be and what kind of teams you want to lead and then move on to what type of scenarios, what type of business scenarios do you want to lead? Do you want to be a transformational leader? Do you want to go into teams that are in trouble, struggling and make them better? Do you like that process of improvement? And really the, the first year is horrific. And then year two and year three, there's kind of this rewarding, wow, we made it, everybody. We did this. We grew this, you know, and so you could be a transformational leader who's cleaning up messes. You could be a transformational leader. So you kind of get what I'm, where I'm going at is there isn't really a transformation to make first. It's a decision to make. And as soon as you figure out what it is specifically that you want to lead and what situations, who, then you can pick the scenarios where you're set up for success because you have a capability set in the leadership direction already. Everybody does. 
And that's what people don't realize is there. Everyone's a leader. Not everyone is a leader in every team scenario, business transformation, because every leader transforms in some way, shape or form, but we're not all the same type of leader. And few of us can lead in uh, succeed leading and be happy leading in many, many different types of diverse settings. And so when you look at top leaders, you know, if you look at uh, parachute teams, they get put together to come in and, and rescue a business. Everybody's got a role. Everybody's got a place. They know what they're doing. They know exactly what it is that they can be successful at. They've got a playbook and it becomes this thing that's enjoyable because you know that this is a situation you're going to drop into that you're going to be successful. in, And that's a big part of your own confidence. And I would say the second part of it that's huge is figure out your sources of authority. Everyone derives authority from different places. And this is the first thing to learn about yourself is to figure out where you derive authority and where those are strong sources of authority and what scenarios are those weak sources of authority. When you talk about working on things that you're not good at, start learning how to build authority using sources that you're kind of weak at. Because right now you're going to lean on your technical chops. You're going to lean on your ability to communicate, your ability to bring ideas to people and persuade them. You're going to lean on that. But in some cases, that won't work. What are those situations that you would be set up to fail using your current sources of, of authority? And how would you learn new ones? What new ones would succeed? Because everyone's framework for leadership is different, but the source of authority is kind of the universal. And you can begin to narrow down what scenarios, what teams, what transitions, what, what you're going to be successful in by looking at what your good, what your good sources of authority are. Yeah, that that it's interesting, and it's interesting to think about because I didn't think about it that way. Um, I know when I was reading one of the blog posts on like Will Larson's like staff engineering post, he does have like this these different archetypes of like staff. Plus, one is like he calls it the right hand of the executive. Uh, another one is like the architect, you know, like the technical, you know, not necessarily like in the weeds. That's like a separate. Uh, deep problem solver that can just ground hole into something. And then I think the third or fourth one was like more structure process. It's something where like there's, there's three architects where I'm like, I, I think I'm good in those. I think I have operated successfully in those. And it's this fourth one. That's a little bit um, the architect where I'm like, Ooh, that one's a little bit, a little bit dicey. Just <laughs> well, a minute. The danger with archetypes is that you begin to try to fit yourself into an archetype rather than figuring out what hybrid you are. Cause no one's pure one, you know, there's no pure, this type of leader that I've ever met at least, but I have met a whole lot of people who have made the mistake of trying to fit themselves into a bucket. And in many cases you marginalize strengths and try to overemphasize weaknesses and so the archetype's dangerous. I like letting I like letting your sources of authority speak for you because that allows you to really discover who you can lead, who will listen. And exploring new sources of authority doesn't necessarily put you into a bucket. And those sources of authority are just wonderful to apply across scenarios. You know, they're really helpful. And Ken, happy birthday. Thank you. 
Shout out to Ken and Vin. You too. Uh, both celebrating birthdays this week. Vin, is it actually your birthday today? Well, happy birthday, man. Thank you for, for spending it with us. That's, that's freaking awesome. Uh, I know it canceled earlier this week. I, I just want to know how you guys figure each other's birthdays out. I need to I need to get this on the This was on Twitter something. when I when I looked yeah. it out. <laughs> it like um, balloons popped up all over the yeah. place. Uh, any other um uh insight or or advice for from Akiko here? Um Ken or anyone? <laughs> Yeah, I've, I've got a comment just to elaborate yeah. on something that I, I, I posted in the chat there. Yeah. So some of the, the, the big things I would say is that the change shift in thinking from going to a junior to a senior position is widening the field of observation and appreciation. So if you're junior and you're, and you're looking at a single task, you have the luxury of being able to concentrate on that and not have a lot of noise outside of that uh, when you're in management, you don't have that because you've got to concentrate on the management as well as something else or to the exclusion of everything else. So try to widen that field of um, observation and appreciation. And I think there are some general generic skills for management that aren't widely appreciated by a lot of people. So I, I think you need to be able to coach the the staff beneath you to get the best from them but that's not the biggest task and i think that's what most people concentrate on for me the biggest element of management is facilitation i enabling everyone who works for you to get the best from themselves and work with their colleagues to get the best from the team so really management in my opinion at least is more about facilitation than it is about coaching coaching certainly is there but that tends to be the headline that I think few then forget about the facilitation part about. So just as a, as a generic management um, observation, I would say that. And then when you're talking about very strictly specific tech leadership or other elements, yes, there's going to be um, bespoke things that you need to do in those in those situations. So. Uh, yeah, you know, I won't talk about all of those because there's probably a hundred different things that you need to do. And I think Vin has summed up very, very well uh, the more specific stuff. Just wanted to sound out some of those generic elements. Yeah, I, I do have a, a quick comment, uh, Harpreet. And yeah. I, I don't think I'm one that can really talk about advancing in tech leadership. I've kind of tried to, to avoid uh, that whole equation together. Uh, but you did mention you know, should you be indexing on your strengths versus what you currently do, which is focusing on areas of weakness and trying to improve those. And the way I've always viewed that, viewed that at least personally, is I try to understand where my ceilings are rather than like where I currently stand. So if there's an area that I'm weaker at, but I think the ceiling is really high, like there's limitless potential associated with that domain, I don't mind spending a lot of time to improve that skill set because I know longer term that can take me really far. Whereas if there's an area that I'm good at, if the ceiling is lower than the ceiling of this other area that I'm, that I'm worse at currently, like the longer term play, actually it's, it's better for me in theory to pursue the thing that I'm worse at because, you know, there's that, uh, again, like that longer term benefit associated with where you could go. So if what you're working on now, you're like, Oh, these skill sets together, although I'm weaker, longer term, this is really going to pay off for me, like absolutely focus on those domains. I think there's probably some hybrid where, uh, 
you can combine some skills that you're good at now with skills that you're not good at currently, but have tremendous upside in the future. And that's like the sweet spot. So, um, I don't currently know how you're like, what framework you're using to think about it now, but that's at least how I evaluate these things in, in my own life. And I would hope that it's been, um, you know, at least relatively effective for me. Yeah. And that's, that's good to hear. Um, because I think, yeah, I mean, that, that's good to hear. And I think I, I am doing that. It's it's a little bit painful. Cause it's like, it's like, I could work on this stuff, right? Like people ask for help and I'm like, I, I could do this because I am good at it, but it takes away time from the things that are weaknesses I need to be working on. And th- so there's always that sort of, I think FOMO of like, I could be doing this, like, this is really good. Or like, you know, stuff outside, like side hustles, stuff like that. I'm like, ah, I could be doing this, but then it's like, oh, but it takes away time from this thing that is like harder and it's special beneficial long-term. And I'm probably just procrastinating on it because it's painful like now. So, yeah. So, but that's, that's all good to hear. Um, cause hopefully, yeah, I have a plan for this year's I'm trying to execute on it. So hopefully that will get someplace <laughs> in two years. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm looking forward to the sneakers. Uh, great question, Makiko. Great. Great uh, tips and, and advice. Definitely give me a lot to think about as well. We actually got a follow-up question from Kadisha on this topic. It's um, it's not the original question Kadisha had. We'll get to that question after this, but it's a, it's a great kind of uh, segue follow-up question. Kadisha, if you'd like to uh, just unmute yourself and ask, if not, um, I could uh, I could read out the question. Sure. How are y'all doing? Hey, how's it going? Nice to meet you guys. Uh, so I'm currently doing an internship um, and I am going from just creating the dashboard and just had, handing it off to managers to now creating that dashboard and also now, you know, making meetings and presenting them to other senior managers and other managers and also coordinating a lot of uh, tasks involved. So I'm just wondering if y'all had like, any advice on being comfortable going from just like analyzing and kind of just um, just just all technical to now being kind of like a project manager as well. Coast uh, up, see your hand up. Do you want to respond to this? Uh, it was less around this, but more around um, exploring was exploitation. So I don't think it directly answers what okay. Kadish is saying. We will circle back uh, to you. Um, Russell, any uh, tips here for, for Kadisha? Let me think on that. If, if anyone else has anything springs to mind, uh, circle back to me. Yeah. Um, uh, Eric, go for it. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's a cool spot to be in, I think, because you're getting beyond just making something and then, but actually then being able to share it, which is cool because then you get to share it in your own voice and you know your interpretation of it for me like the you know i'm sure there are so lots of different things that you can do but the first thing that comes to mind for me is just it's like finding that balance between staying humble because you aren't necessarily the smartest person in the room but also taking pride in what you've done because 
with respect to the thing you're doing, like you're the dashboard that you've made, you may actually be the smartest person in the room because not everybody necessarily understands all the different components and things like that, that maybe you had to put together the nuances of the data and things like that. And so I would just say, you know, stay humble knowing that you have a small place in a big machine, but also take pride in what you've done because you, you, you know it probably better than many people do. Mikiko, go for it. Yeah, I think uh, the advice that uh, I was given recently for my manager um, that I really like is she's like, when you're doing projects uh, or initiatives or whatever, uh, create like a poster board sort of thing. And it's just like a little cheat sheet or like the index card of like your main points bullet pointed. Um, that is the like, what is the business problem that you're trying to solve? How, you're, how are you solving it? Um, three supporting sort of um, analyses or reports or what have you to support that solution. Um, and then list the assumptions too. Um, so if you can kind of do it there, because I have what I used to have was that I used to just give very like too little detail. This was like early, early on in my career. And then my manager at that time was just like, oh, you just need to write more. But she ne never really gave me insight into what was this more. And the more is the like making sure that you're answering the right question, like answering their questions while still kind of listing the sort of assumptions that you're making in your sort of answer and then leaving room open for feedback. Um, because I think, and you see this in frankly a lot of shows and movies and I really kind of hate it. Like the person is super, you know, confident. They present this killer presentation and everyone's just floored and they have no questions. And that has just literally never happened in my life. Um, Cause even then when they're really excited by the presentation, their questions, there will be questions around like, oh, how can we fast can we implement it? Oh, can we tweak this X, Y, Z? Oh, can we add this other feature that will create this new like 20 hour, you know, pipeline lift or something like that. Um, so even when you're doing well in the presentations killer, people always have questions and that's like a really good thing. Or they'll offer feedback that will then change the analysis. Um, the one thing that I always really enjoyed about working with my business partners was in many ways, they, I don't say they're very simple. That's not really quite nice, but um, they're what they want out of it. <laughs> Ken's laughing. <laughs> what they want out of it is usually pretty straightforward. Um, so that's like the nice thing is you can start with just kind of like the bullet points of it, of the presentation. Um, make sure that there's kind of room for discussion. Uh, even for example, creating a Slack thread so that if people have questions kind of real time, they can post to it and then it doesn't disrupt the flow of the presentation and like things like that. Also, the second part is there is no such thing as too much preparation. Um, once again, a lot of noise on LinkedIn about how like I crushed this presentation after only an hour of prep. Yeah, that also just never happens unless you're like the domain expert SME, the subject matter expert of your area and you have lived and breathed that project, then people will, can maybe kind of crush it. But that's usually because they're just doing like a status update on the project. Um, so however much time you feel like you need for your presentation to prepare for it, definitely take it, block it out for yourself, um, deal with bullet points, and also Minto Pyramid. Very cool thing to look up. It's a great framework for presenting. 
I think it, they live and breathe it at McKinsey or something. It's either BCG or McKinsey. Um, and that's because they're constantly giving presentations to really smart, difficult people. Um, maybe Vin also knows a little bit of that too, right? Yeah. He's not going to say it. He's not going to say they're difficult. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I found like time-wise for a presentation, uh, I've noticed at least for me, like when I first create the presentation, it's usually about 30 minutes to 45 minutes of prep for every one minute of presentation like it's not easy making presentations like it's a it's, it's a job man it's, it's a pain in the ass uh russell and then ken and then uh Kadisha also had like a, another follow-up question which uh, i think fits in nicely here then after Kadisha's question we'll, we'll go to um there's a question coming in from linkedin from paul great question and then we'll get to jennifer uh Narden's question uh russell then ken Thank you. Yeah, and I'd just like to second both Eric and Makigo's points. Those are great points. Um, one additional thing I'd say is know your audience and optimize the presentation for your audience and optimize the tools you will present for your audience. I've been in several situations where I've worked on some great stuff with a great team and we've turned around something that just kind of blows our minds, but the audience doesn't get it. It's kind of it's beyond their data literacy point at that stage it may be something that you can take them to in six months but don't throw it at them straight away you need to build them up to it so optimize it for the audience don't push them too hard uh and even if um you think it's the best thing you know you've kind of got to swallow that pride element and understand that regardless of what you know to be the case it's to serve the purposes of the audience. That's a primary objective of the work that you're doing. So optimize it for them and then create a plan to get them from that lower point to the point that you already have in mind in a period of time, say two, three months, six months, whatever it is, depending on the scope that you've got in hand. But it's got to be optimized for the audience. That's the biggest thing for any presentation. Thank you very much. Uh, let's go to Ken, then then Eric, and then Costa. We'll hear from you on this. And just a preview some of the questions that are coming up. Uh, Kadisha wanted to know uh, what you know. How far can you advance in analytics if you don't lead people in the organization? Paul has a question about why the hell we have to go through these crazy ass coding interviews um, for machine learning engineering and and you know that kind of stuff. Uh, and then Jennifer has a question on. Um, I just wrote it down, but I lost it. Uh, about uh, business analytics and, and things of that nature. So a lot of cool questions coming up. Make sure you guys stick around. Ken, then Eric, then Kostub. Uh, let's hear your advice for Kadisha. If she were, I don't even know if she's still here or not. Um, go for it, Ken. Uh, yeah, this will be really quick. Um, so this is just kind of following, following up on what Mickey said about the pyramid principle. I, I was actually a management consultant for, for quite a bit before I moved into data science. And I think it's interesting to look at how a consultant is trained to give information or give a presentation. You always start with the bottom line up front. It's the concept of a bluff, right? So you, you tell the story backwards when you're presenting it. And I don't think that's necessarily a logical or normal way that you would present a technical concept. So the idea here is that like, you have to speak their language and often that's why starting with the findings and also like giving them a reason why the uh, like proximate steps are relevant for what you're showing them. So my thing would be like, Hey, start with the findings, make sure they, they know what they're getting and why it's important and why it's relevant to them. 
and then you have to like explain the caveats and the and like you know the the assumptions and a lot of these things that could make it not work as planned um you know according to your your research and your analysis so there's this like weird conflict between the way business users and business stakeholders tell stories and how technical people tell stories i haven't seen it resolved very effectively but at the very least you under you understanding that they're going to listen for certain things in a certain order can help you convey your message a lot more clearly thank you very much ken eric so, Kadisha, one of the other things you said was, you know, partially, you know, presentation, but then also like the project management side and working with different stakeholders. So I wanted to like say something quick about that. And that is like, before you have a big presentation with a group or anything like that, I usually like I'll grab somebody that I know in product, somebody I know well, somebody I trust to give me feedback to like say like, here's what I have. Does this make sense to you? Um, and if it makes sense, or maybe they give feedback, they give me some instructions or something like that, some ideas, then I can incorporate that after talking to one person. And then I can go talk to maybe one other person and get a little bit of feedback from them. Before you know it, I've talked to half the group individually. And then when it comes time to present to like the big wig person who, you know, has to give that final sign off, I already have half a room who's on my team and they all have already seen it. They're agreed with it and it's cool and we're gonna go for it. One of my old managers called it counting your votes before you call for them. And uh, it's really helpful. Go step, go for it. Mate, that's spot on, Eric. Like uh, I was going to say, one of the things that I, I used to do, especially when I'm presenting to a larger group of people with, with a variety of things, is present before you present, right? Like I would literally make that presentation three or four times to individual stakeholders who I know that I need to get across the line. Um, and along the way, I'll just find all these problems that they would point out in that one-on-one -on -one, and they're comfortable pointing it out. And I'm much more comfortable, especially when I was um, like in my first year working and second year working kind of thing, you know, uh, still quite early to the professional world. I was like, okay, I'm more comfortable in that one-on-one -on -one situation telling them, hey, I don't know the answer to that. And then I can find out before the actual presentation itself, right? Or at least I can tailor it to, to that need. Um, but the second side of it is that when you don't do that, and this is something that I kind of learned on the fly by making all the mistakes worst that you could do in that situation is by putting myself in a room with 20 or 30 people that were subject matter experts in their own areas and are only in that room to figure out how my presentation is going to help out solve the problems that they're trying to solve. That's on the top of their list. Let's remember that that's why they're there. They're not there to like glorify your findings, for example. Um, so what I, what I found the trap was, was, it's very easy to fall into that situation where I'm presenting, so I know the answers. So when they ask a question that kind of actually detracts from what you're trying to present, they will they will constantly come back to say, okay, how does this solve my problem in operations? Or how does this solve my problem in the manufacturing floor? If you don't have the answer to that, the thing that I found was being comfortable to say, this isn't what that's about, right? Just straight up calling it out and saying, that's not why I'm presenting. We're presenting specifically with this area, they're going to want to do that. But being able to deflect that in a, in, in a professional manner and actually being able to say, you know what, I see the value in what you're trying to apply this to. Maybe let's take this chat offline. Being able to deflect that and keep the focus on what you're trying to present is really important because it's so easy, and this happened to me at least twice, where it's completely derailed and I'm stuck in a, in a point where I'm mentally trying to solve their problem on the fly. But 
it, it just all goes to shambles. So uh, that's a trap that it's it's very easy to prepare for by a doing you know counting your votes as Eric said, and also very easy to account for by just being comfortable saying I don't know. Let's find out. You know. Um, so yeah, that, that that's what I learned from screwing it up multiple times. Yeah, I love that. I've if, if I've learned one thing, and that's uh, I know a lot less than 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 I actually know. It's a good, it's a good feeling. Uh, Mikigo, go for it, and then we'll go uh, to Paul's. Uh, yeah, we'll go to Paul's question, and then circle back to Katisha's other question. Uh, Mikiko, go for it. Something that to me was very, very cool uh, when I switched over to the engineering world from the data science um, analytics side of the house was tech specs. Uh, not necessarily that writing a tech spec is really cool, but the idea that these are living, breathing, async, you know, async documents where you can collect feedback and you can specify the like what what what, what they call the some people call it the racy matrix, other call the Daisy matrix. Not like Daisy as in you know supporting the motherland, right? You know, of India, like not like that, but like um, like DACI, but um, Racy is like responsible, accountable, contributing, informed. But the idea of like a tech spec being like this living document that encourages feedback, that encourages input, to me was just such a cool concept. Uh, because a lot of times when you, I, I used to be, when I was early in my career, I had this habit of like kind of getting feedback from people like right before the presentation or like during or after. And some people kind of, you know, everyone has different learning and processing styles. So this is also another way to be really inclusive to people who maybe just need a little bit extra time um, is if you have like the pre, what they call the pre-read doc, you know, so you kind of have what you want to say and some supporting stuff and you kind of like send it out beforehand. It could be like however many days or week or whatever. Uh, first off, people love being included on those, even when they shouldn't be in the kitchen. Uh, they love it. And it also gives them time to like really think about it and to like do all this questions and chat. And then if you even have a chance to address some of those before the presentation, that already, it builds your credibility in terms of like the relationships and as a, this is a partner who cares about what we think. Um, but also it can get some of those people like, you know, squared away <laughs> before they derail your presentation. Even the people who don't mean to, sometimes there's, there's always those one or two people. Um, so, you know, that's something that to me was like very, very powerful and it's really kind of cool. And I think, yeah, I, I feel like I've mostly seen on the engineering side. I feel like I haven't seen it a lot on the data science machine, data science analytics side. And I wish more people kind of did that. Great tips. Uh, that's something I actually do because I present a lot for work, like mostly at conferences and webinars and things like that. Um, but I'll have, yeah, because, you know, I'm, I'm doing presentations that are technical, that are somewhat marketing, that are somewhat advocacy so uh having little one-off just like run-throughs of the presentation or, or just overviews and getting people's feedback that's been very helpful so i uh, love that tip thank you very much mikiko let's go to uh let's go to paul's question uh he's got a great question question that uh i'd love to know the answer to as well go for it <clears throat> hello uh yeah i'm really happy to be here it's cool to see you guys um and ken i've been like listening to your videos for so long so this is cool. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was wondering why uh, leak, leak code questions are the barrier to entry for uh, machine learning roles. I'm looking for a junior position or an internship. 
and I've been sent assessments, um, which seem like leak code problems. And then when I've built projects in class or during my current internships, I haven't really had to apply something like sorting a linked list. Um, so I'm just wondering why uh, we're asked these questions, like kind of as a way to assess our machine learning skills and um, how to get better at answering these questions. Cause I feel like they just don't come naturally to me. Um, so yeah, that, that was my question. I could definitely relate to you on that. Uh, trust me. And it's not even just entry level. It's, all levels you got to go through this let's hear from Makiko uh and then uh Canada Ben doesn't have his hand up and I'm bringing him into this because uh, I'd love to, to hear from him as well uh Makiko go for it because people are bad at hiring and they're lazy and cheap um <laughs> yeah <laughs> no I mean, okay so it depends right <clears throat> um ultimately it just it comes down to uh, okay so for example big fan companies they get like hundreds of applications, uh, much like college, you know, with the first year is these really ridiculous, like, why would you throw C++ at an incoming college student in their first year? I mean, they're just easier languages, right? And like, if you're, if you really care about the STEM pipeline, well, why would you do that? Right. And it's just to weed out people because they get so many people that go through the program, right? Because if they actually make computer science and programming fun, then that would be a lot more people that are engineers so uh it's similar with those like big tech companies um because and it, but the nice thing is that all their interviews are very standardized you know when you go interview for apple google facebook twitter you know exactly what you're getting i mean uh, you could even look up the data structure and algorithms questions on lead code and you know what you you have like a almost a 10 percent, 10 to 20 percent chance in picking the right question which if you spend enough time studying for it that's actually pretty good like just and some people have done that they've literally just worked through uh cracking the coding interview and they will just copy pasta the answer right so big tech companies they, they can kind of afford to do that though because like who wouldn't want to work at a company where like you're getting what 120 to 250k in base with equity um so they do that intentionally other companies I don't think they do that intention. I don't think they do it with that. We want to kill as many people out of our pipeline as possible. It's, I think they do it because they honestly don't know a better way to hire and, or they're not willing to make the investment because and it depends if you're going in as a data scientist or a machine learning um, engineer or a data engineer or whatever. Um, if you're an engineer you and you're working on fundamental sort of application layers, you do kind of need you actually do need data structures and algorithms knowledge to a certain degree. Um, like if you're a Google engineer that is working on like the next iteration to Spanner, your data structure and algorithms knowledge, it probably should be really good. Same if you're working in um, AV, in robotics. Um, a lot of times you're writing stuff that's very close to firmware. So it, it does need to be that level. But for a lot of companies and roles, it actually doesn't. And so the reality I think is that for a lot of times, it's because they, they don't know how to hire an interview. Um, you know, it's unfortunate. And I've, I've been there, like, data science to ML engineer to, like, platform engineer. Like, it's it's a pain. Now, the brilliant part is when you get more senior, uh, a lot of times they won't even put you through that. Like, literally, once you get past the senior level, right now, like, they will not 
So it, it's, it's a pain point that juniors feel. Once you get to the senior level, you have work experience and maybe personal projects. And at that point, they usually just care about like how you think about problems at like a system level. So that's like the secret, guys. It's, they don't do this to everyone. <laughs> they don't. And a lot of companies don't. Uh, when I was getting my first ML engineering job, I tried doing the ones that had data structure algorithms interviews. And then at that point, I just said no. And it ended up being like 70% of companies I interviewed for, they did not do a data structures and algorithms interview because I had some work experience at startups. So that's, that's the other secret is not every company does it. You can kind of find the ones who don't, um, but it gets easier as you get more senior. Uh, Ken, go for it. Then after Ken, Vin, and then Kostub. Yeah, I, so I agree with what Mickey was saying about why we have these. Uh, I, I think that, you know, for, for for worse, for the most part, there's just a, a lot of companies don't don't think that there's a better way to evaluate the talent. And a lot of the companies that aren't at the at the top, they just see what Google and uh, and Amazon and, and Meta are doing, and they just follow suit, right? Um, which does not necessarily make a, a, a good ecosystem. Uh, on the other hand, it does show that you can sit there and learn a skill and dedicate a lot of time and effort to practicing it, which isn't necessarily the worst thing to signal, right? If you can get through those things, they say, wow, this person can clearly dedicate X amount of hours to picking up the skill and, and to learning this infrastructure. And maybe they would do the, that same thing when they started at our company. What I can help with, hopefully, is how to get a lot better at these. And there's two steps. So one is just reps. So like leap code, uh, there's algo expert. If you're looking at, at data science specifically, there's interview query. And they're a lot of the time just taking real questions from these companies and just cycling them back through to you. Something that I would always do before an interview, and I'm not necessarily sure how like super ethical it is, but... I would always just go on Glassdoor and look at what they asked other candidates. I mean, it's out there, it's public, it's, it's, it's information that, and I, at least in four or five interviews got the exact same questions that people were posting on Glassdoor, like verbatim, the same thing. And so you can go in and they're out there. If you're just looking for like, Hey, a list of Facebook interview questions, a list of XYZ interview questions. Um, so at larger companies, they cycle through pretty similar questions most of the time. At smaller companies, they often don't really change the interview questions that they have very frequently. So in both cases, you're probably going to be able to see similar questions to what you're actually going to be getting. Um, so again, my advice would be practice and just do as much homework as you can. Ask your friends if they went through the interview process, whatever be a, probably a pretty uh, pretty effective way to get ahead there. And thank you so much. Uh, also, just shout out to uh, Austin Loveless in the building. Good to see you again, man. It's been quite some time. Um, I'm, I'm curious, like, you know, to, to the other half of, of Paul's question is, how do you prepare for these questions? How do you get better? Like, it, there's got to be a better way than just brute force memorizing these solutions, right? Because what, who does that serve? Like, how, did, is there an overarching kind of way to I guess solve these questions or or think through them or something like this. You know what I mean? Uh Vin, let's let's hear from you. Yeah, I think so I'm old. I don't really know if computer science is still taught the same way as it was when we were first inventing fire. But we were taught like some really basic types of patterns. 
and you had patterns, practices, fundamentals of architecture and design. And most of these lead code things, that's what they're trying to test. But the people that built them aren't really entirely sure of what they're going after. And they're trying to be nice in some ways where it's like they want to test this really complicated thing, but they want to also not make a really impossible test. What they end up with is something that doesn't test anything and is already more complicated than it needs to be. And so you have to look at a lot of these and realize the intent was to test your foundational knowledge of software engineering. At some point, you know, you may be testing architectural concepts, very high level, but they're also trying to do that in what should take, you know, between two to three weeks to test. And they're going to give you this thing in eight hours that you're somehow going to cram. <laughs> just it, It's a construct that has decent intentions, especially for companies that are solving really complex problems. You make a mistake and you get away with it four times, but the fifth time, you know, AWS crashes. And that's, that, that is literally what goes on is, you know, you, the hashtag AWS downtrends because, you know, you made one small mistake and that's, that's what they're testing for is to make sure that that mistake happens as few times as possible and that you have the foundational knowledge necessary to do really complex work, but no one ever gives the intern that work anyway. I have no idea why we test junior level. Like, why would you, would you give them a mission critical check-in and no one reviews it? Really? No one's testing this stuff? <laughs> Come on. So it's kind of unrealistic. But the point is, and if you wanted a mechanism to study, it really is that you've got to go through the foundational knowledge of software engineering, not coding. But unfortunately, it gets convoluted. And so if you understand those foundational concepts, the patterns, practices, that sort of, you know, then it gets easier but because they're all variations on a theme really are maybe like 20 themes, but past that, the implementation, like the thing that you're actually going to have to code, that's where stuff gets convoluted. And, it, you know, everyone could potentially fail any given one of these at any given time. And I think that's what a lot of us call out on a regular basis is any given Monday, you give me any one of these and I'll pass three out of five. You know, and that's the truth of it is that the implementation that's given to you, maybe you forgot. <laughs> it's, that's a legitimate reason why. And exactly what Kiko said, you get to a certain point and people are afraid to interview you because they're scared you know more and you're going to make them look stupid in the interview. And so there is this fear in interviews that, you know, someone smarter than you is going to show up in the interview. And this is also a fear that's pervasive when you're interviewing very educated junior level or entry level, especially if you have some, you know, one or two impressive projects behind you, you can actually intimidate your interviewers. And so be wary that in a lot of cases, if you see one of these at a less tech first, less advanced company, they may be using this to kind of save themselves a little bit. And it, it allows them to ask fewer technical questions and potentially reveal some of their weaknesses as a team. So there are a number of different sort of inside games that are being played. And so I would just call those out 
and do the best you can with underlying, with understanding the foundational concepts and hope for the best on implementations. And when you talk about like, like patterns and things like that, is that stuff like you know, sliding windows, pointers, merge, sorts, link lists, sure. trees? It uh, could be. You know, that's the thing is there's foundational concepts of software engineering, which are basically your best practices so you don't build garbage. And that can be everything as granular as comment your code, for God's sake, please comment your code, especially if you're a data scientist. Please. Sorry, I went through something there. You know, it can be as something as basic as, right, like that's a pattern. Comment your code, make it make sense. And then, you know, variable naming is a pattern. So it can be really granular stuff that's being asked of you. And you can have a solution that's totally wrong. But if you comment it and you do some best practices, more times than not, a team's going to look at that and just go, you know what? I can teach the rest. Like I can teach the larger architectural pattern that you completely missed, but I can read your code. And you're the first person <laughs> who submitted an answer that I would actually enjoy reading. And so don't, don't overestimate the really granular patterns and, and realize there are like I said, there's about 20 variations of these lead coding types, you know, 20 themes that get very, get variations on. So really try to find the patterns behind it. If I walked through all of them, it would be, this would be an hour and a half. So I just say, try to figure out the underlying patterns, figure out the most common architectural patterns and software engineering patterns, get those committed to memory and then figure out implementations from there. And thank you. Costa, uh, go for it. Yeah, this is um, this is a bit of a pet peeve area in general for me. Like, because I think we've got it grossly wrong. Then I've followed a lot of what you said in this area. I think most of us have seen most of that. It's one of those things where I, I think at this point in my career, I'm kind of resigned to the fact that yeah, people are going to ask me to do that, but I'm going to care about it just as much as they care about it. You know what I mean? Like I've, I have in the past literally dropped an interview process voluntarily saying, oh, I'm not interested in the next stage out of fear that I'm not going to do well enough in that test. And then I like, now I look back at that and see the big flaw in that thinking is I was at that time wondering, oh, I've got to impress people. I'm not going to impress. I'm going to make a bad name for myself doing this. But if they're literally just using it as a filter, and they're going to spend 10 seconds checking the final score on what you got. Don't worry yourself so much about trying to impress them because it's just going to waste your energy. But now, if that's the barrier to getting you the jobs that you want, go ahead and put those hours into just getting well enough to get through that barrier, right? It's like getting your, your um, resume writing skills up to a point where people are actually going to bother to read it, right? It's like put in as much effort as they're going to put in in return right now, if they're going to get, take you through like a project and actually give you proper feedback, then yeah, you can learn a lot from that. So I, I do see interviews as being this two way street, right? If they're going to give me a project. I'm going to expect a proper review on that code and actually sit through and walk through it because that gives both sides something. One, it lets them see the intent behind what I'm coding. And two, I get to actually see that, Hey, this is a team that's going to bother to review my code. That's going to bother to, uh, you know, uh, understand what I'm trying to get to. If they're not going to bother doing that for me, are they going to do that when I'm working for them? You know, is that, do they have the expertise to review my code? These are the questions that I answer by actually doing those coding tests. So as much as I hate doing them, that's the value that I seek for it. So if they're going to fire off like a fire and forget, um, you know, leak code quiz at me, then I'm going to fire and forget to smash it out in an hour. 
do my best. If I fail, whatever, go on to the next job interview. But to be honest, it's a bit of a buyer's market, sorry, a, a seller's market in a sense, in the sense of where the sellers of skills. Um, there's dozens of interviews out there. Don't stress yourself and take each one as practice. Don't worry about, oh, I need to have done 100 practice quizzes before I go and attempt this one. Consider that a practice quiz and just keep going. Like, at the end of the day, it's like passing your, your high school maths exams, right? You just got to do hundreds of them. And yeah, sure, you'll fail a couple along the way. Um, the bigger problem here is how do we actually come up with a way of understanding a person's technical expertise and depth of technical expertise in a very diverse area that often we're not familiar with? And that's not really a problem that an interviewee solves, right? That's something that we as an industry need to like really rethink. Um, there isn't going to be a, a you know, one size fits all for any company in this measure. So you're going to see a variety of that. Um, throw yourself at practice questions for a bit, but at the end of the day, don't beat yourself up about it because, frankly, like Vin said, I can't guarantee that I'd remember a specific line of code in the Pandas toolkit when I need to. We're going to Google that stuff all day. So even if we do know it. Full stack overflow data scientist. That's what I am. Makiko, go for it. Yeah, and something that like was mind-changing was this, was it last year or something like that? When I was like struggling, I, I literally failed every single technical screen interview because I would just get so nervous and I'd stop thinking. And so at that point, I was taking uh, the full stack deep learning workshop. And one of the TAs there, I remember I posted, I was like, it's just been terrible. And like one of the TAs was like, let me just work on your resume and let me let me hear what you're doing with your process. And he was like the first one to say, like, oh, by the way, you can, he's like at your level. And, and, and granted, like, you know, I have five or six years now of working like in various roles in tech. So I'm not a super junior candidate. Right. So just to caveat that. Right. Um, he's like, yeah, you don't even need to do any of those. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> I have a choice. I can say no. And he's like, yeah, he's like at a certain level. Um, you don't have to. He's like, if you want to do the tech, you know, the, the big fan companies. Right. Like they're, you can't really negotiate on some of those. Uh, but he's like, as long as that is not your goal he's like yeah you can just say no to all of them and you can even ask the interviewer like hey like you know based off my experience and your needs can you fast track me because guess what like i got i got other recruiters to talk to i got other opportunities and there's this one girl on twitter i think uh who did something really cool so she she has she has just, just this generic vanilla copy paste message where she's like um so if you're a recruiter I will not be doing any tech screens. It unfairly dis disadvantages women, uh, people of color, uh, LGBTQ. If you have, um, if you have anxiety, if you are a career changer and you haven't had a chance to get a formal education, uh, she's like, and I fit all these boxes. Uh, you know, so there's a lot of reasons for why I will not be doing these technical screens. So you can just skip right past me. And I'm like, yeah, that's baller. I'm gonna do that. But yeah, like you, you like at, at a certain point when you build up the leverage, you you have choices and you you can make some of those decisions to either like voice or exit. Um, it's just a matter of like making sure you stay in the game long enough and you build up that cash chain, that leverage to eventually be able to do that. Kiko, thank you very much, Paul. A lot of great advice there. Um, hopefully, you enjoy that. I might just cut that up and make that into a blog post uh, sometime soon. That was great, great tips. 
Um, you can expect uh, everybody to get tagged on that one. Um, let's go to uh, Jennifer's question. Then after Jennifer's question, we'll go to uh, Nikhil's question. Um, Jennifer, are you still here? Yes, you are. There you go. I am. Yes. Hey. So I'm working with my university to add a business analytics emphasis to their MBA program. So think about those that are not engineers, they're not technical, but need to use data at the end of the pipeline for strategic decisions. What do you think they need to know coming out of their MBA program? Hmm. Vin, I'll toss this one to you or uh, Ken. Ken, then Vin. Yeah, so I've, I've thought a lot about this. I mean, I came out of a, a business program and was trying to understand what data was and how to use the tools and whatever it is. And, you know, initially, like going into the program, I didn't even have an idea about what SQL was. And I think just being able to access data that uh, other other people are using that the engineers are using is a really powerful skill. I also think SQL is not something that's overwhelmingly difficult to learn for someone with like a business background, right? You're used to seeing um, like Excel tables, you know, SQL in theory is just a bunch of like different Excel tables that are linked together and in an organized way. So I think that that is a really fundamental thing that a lot of business people are going to be seeing at work and they'd want to be able to interface with and, and use. Um, the next thing I would generally recommend is some sort of BI tool. I think a lot of business people who I've worked with in the past, they really wish that, or they get really excited when they see Power BI, when they see Tableau and they can start working with it. That to them is like, wow, I wish I had learned this earlier because this is something I can differentiate myself with in my work. This is something that gives me the power to create insights or, or generate a lot of these findings. Um, on top of that though, I do think if you're doing descriptive statistics, if you're looking at central tendency, you probably should have at least one additional sort of statistics fundamentals or a foundations course. So you're not making assumptions that aren't realistic for the data that you're using. So I think those are sort of the, the three things that I think are relevant. So the ability to access data with SQL, the ability to understand like the implications of the data with statistics and the ability to show that through some sort of powerful visualization tool. I think that those are in my mind, the foundations. Let's go to a coast up then uh, Eric, and then I keep forgetting to go to Vin. Uh, we'll go to him as well. Uh, coast up then Eric, then Vin. Also, shout out Greg Kokio is in the building. Good to see you, man. Happy New Year. Coast up, go for it. But, so one of the things that I see universities have a tendency to do because it's, it's easy uh, is take existing courses from or is existing subjects from other uh, courses and streams, particularly from uh, like undergrad streams and chuck it into like a, uh, into a postgraduate course. Um, and whether that's like an MBA kind of course or whether that's like a master's or something, um, I, I see that a lot. Uh, and my problem with that is that it might be a total waste of time for them to do a full undergrad, you know, intro to statistics course. A lot of that might not be applicable to, you know, uh, people going for an MBA, but I think being able to put together a specific course that will take them through the statistics that they're going to be exposed to. Now, as a business leader, you're you're exposed to, you know, you're going to be thrown a confusion matrix now and then. You're going to be thrown, you know, some kind of statistical visualization. 
uh, is there a way that you can expose them to those kinds of situations where they need to understand that? Because plenty of times on the, on the technical side, I've had to present to business leaders who don't really understand the statistics of a confusion matrix, right? And having to explain that from scratch, often that's a big hurdle in the first place, you know? Um, so getting them to understand metrics of what they're going to see coming out of the data might be just as important as getting them to understand the processes applied to the data itself. In fact, I'd argue that if they can walk out of there understanding the metrics, then they can glue that conversation with the data science teams that they're going to be working with. They're going to be able to glue that uh, you know, business level understanding to what the statistical technological understanding is. Um, so yeah, maybe avoiding that pitfall of like, oh, we've got a statistics course over here. They need to know statistics, chuck that in. And tailoring something that maybe you've got a data science master's stream that's already running. Um, maybe those people want some experience in presenting their findings to a particular business use case. So maybe just setting up workshops like that, that gives the data science master's students the ability to be exposed to, oh, we've got to present these findings. Um, and likewise, getting the, you know, the MBA uh, students to be able to have that exposure of having findings presented to them. Um, that's a very real world way of learning it. And I don't know whether that fits into the approach of here's a subject we do at university, but it might fit better in like an MBA kind of course. Joseph, thanks so much. Uh, Eric, go for it. Cool. So I, so my partner is actually doing her MBA right now, um, finishing up here soonish and has a data analytics component to it. And so this has been on our minds for a couple of years now. And so, you know, I was going to basically echo what Ken was saying like about like SQL is huge because like some of the people I work with, you know, it would, it would make a huge difference in their life if they could get to the data just, and it's not even that hard for them to get to what they need. So having some SQL knowledge, like a BI platform. And then the other piece, like, and this is, I know it's a delicate balance because, you know, stats can be an undergrad or it can be a course and, you know, you got to draw the line somewhere. And some of the things that have kind of come to, come to mind for me are, you know, understanding A-B testing. It doesn't have to be at a crazy high level and you don't have to get down into all the T's and Z's and potatoes and I don't even know what else is, but like, just like understand A-B testing because it's a thing and we can all relate to it. Clustering, Tableau can cluster. And so like, if you understand K means clustering and you have this, you know, vague notion of, you know, that distance, great, you know, and because market segmentation is an important thing in the context of, you know, a, a, an MBA student with a marketing emphasis. Um, and then the other piece is, I would say with, you know, talking about something like regression, which is common is like, you know, making sure I would say going deep enough into the most common subjects and like understanding what those assumptions are so that when we're having a conversation, me and, um, somebody who has an MBA that when we're talking about it, we're kind of talking on the same, talking about the same things and we, we know kind of where the fences are around the things that we're talking about. And that's really helpful. And I would say, because I think that should be sometimes added, the thing that I would take out is like, okay, forget that piece of the class that where you're going to teach jump or forget the piece of the class where you're going to teach SAS because, oh my gosh, like with your MBA, you are never going to need that if you're, you know, doing, you know, not SAS something. And uh, I would say, Instead, you can then focus on getting those like 
little bit of the little bit of depth in the really important stuff, you know, that we talk about most frequently. And then the other thing, just piggybacking off of what Custom said, in my program, we had to do uh, like a dashboard presentation to the to the coach of the university tennis team. So he gave us like a bunch of stats that they use for tracking tennis players during their games. And then we were divided up into teams and we had to put it all together and we all presented. It was great. Uh, it was hard. It was intimidating. We didn't know who the person was that we were going to be presenting to or anything. And it was an area that I had like almost no domain, like expertise in or anything. So it was, I, I really liked Coastal's idea and it was a good experience for me too. Uh, let's go to Greg, then Makiko, and then after that, we'll get to uh, uh, Nick Hill's question. Shout out to Nick Singh. Nick Singh is in the building. Good to see you, man. Um, yeah, check out the interview that was released, I think it was this week, right, on Ken's podcast with uh, Nick Singh. So definitely check that out. Um, Greg, go for it. Yeah, um, so basically, especially graduate school, I feel like it, it was really oriented towards uh, adding context, especially in MBA programs. I think programs like this will really focus on uh, use cases can win a lot, um, especially in learning the business environment. So nowadays you live in the time of open source. So there are a lot of use cases that we can pull out there, we repose where the data is already sitting there, and then you put it in a business context and um, you have, uh, you know, these guys, you know, study or perform certain analysis and i totally uh i can totally relate to to ken about that you know having access to the data knowing how to access it uh with sql is is really huge but also uh understanding the you know removing the context of you know tool but the focus on the how and uh doing it with the minimum tool possible for example um again excel for example uh, is the birthplace of Power BI and it's Power Query. So you could do a lot of things in Excel that you can do in Power BI. So all of these use cases, you can create an environment for uh, these guys to uh, understand one, what are the business metrics that uh, they need to uh, analyze, have sound uh, analytical, capabilities, like know how to perform trend analysis, um, know how to perform some high level statistical process control, sometimes, you know, even knowing how to perform ANOVA, um, you know, even some forecasting method too, depending on what they, what they do. Optimization uh, is another one. Uh, I, I'm only thinking about the things that I've done in my graduate program. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, putting these methods inside of a context or a different context, which, 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 which is what I call use cases or business cases is really key to uh, giving them a, a good leg forward when they enter the real world. Greg, thank you so much. Uh, Makiko, go for it. And then after Makiko, Vin, and then we'll go to Nick Hill's question. Yeah, so there was a period of time where I was kind of straddling the analytics to the data science world, and I was focused on um, strategic finance, uh, supply chain, um, so revenue operations, like kind of the meat of a business and, and using data in a business. And I feel like the struggle in I don't want to say being successful there. I feel like the struggle could be encompassed in 
the annual planning exercises where we try to put together like a business scorecard that gave a comprehensive overview specifically of like our sales forecasting and expected sales projections. It was almost like pulling in so many different skills because there's the one layer of there's the visual communication and the, the business communication. How, how, you know, how do you tell a story? And there's a second part of actually just like problem solving, which is using your context, right. Of the business domain. So it could be finance, it could be supply chain, it could be whatever. Um, do you understand some of like the fundamental equations or theorems or what have you? such that you can then frame and identify the problems and then come up with the relevant solutions, which is kind of hard. I, I don't really know how to teach on the undergrad, but then it's how do you then forecast uh, in a manner that is both, um, that leverages not just like low hanging fruit machine learning techniques, but also the business partners, like the business partner as an SME. So, one of the big mental switch I had to change was I went from a uh, forecast is whatever our like managers, like you know, the GMs or whatever would float up their, their individual Excel sheets and, and whatnot. And that's like the running, that's the running of like how things are going and what they think versus like, how do we get an over like a company overview? And then how do we like adjust our forecast to the actuals? I'm sorry, I'm doing a really bad job explaining this, but it's funny because like, I feel like that, series of projects to me summed up all the things that are really, really hard about being a really good analyst that's working with business partners is you need to operate at these different levels. I do feel like one of the biggest gaps was um, the like utilizing low hanging fruit machine learning techniques while still combining it with the human business input to then get a really good picture of, of the business. I thought that was really kind of hard because we had to figure out the dashboard we had to figure out how to frame the question. And then we had to somehow float it up into our SNOP, like in our, our annual planning process. And a lot of people have different theories about it, but I've never seen one where it connects the like the technical, like how do you do it with the business problems and the domain? And then how do you then create like a viable data business product out of it? I'm doing a really terrible job explaining it, but I think that's like so cool that you're doing that. So just want to say it, it very cool. It's very well with what I've struggled with at Intel. So I think I understand what you were describing. Then go for it. Ken, thanks Mine for is, I was 100% sure Greg or Kiko was going to say this. So four, four classes that I would add, or at least four areas of focus that I would add, focus really on what do you do with data? And we don't teach anyone what to do, how to work with data. And from what I've found that's useful in helping people like learn how to make decisions with data, um, introduction to like an information sciences overview, introduction to decision science, introduction to uh, actually not an introduction. You could probably go pretty pretty deep into game theory because if you're already going through a, a an MBA track, you've probably got the background to run through game theory, and then finally do a class on neuroeconomics because that's really the, the synthesis of those three domains is neuroeconomics. 
And so that's, it's a really interesting progression from understanding data with information sciences to understanding the basics of decision-making with data to understanding game theory, which really gives you frameworks for decision-making and evaluating alternatives and understanding collaboration, uncertainty, and then finally getting into neuroeconomics where we're beginning to really understand how we make decisions and why we're such trash decision-makers and why we somehow survive even though we make terrible decisions, which is kind of one of those wonderful things where you, you realize it's okay to make bad decisions, you just have to get better at it. And so there's this, I mean, that's kind of an evolution that I wish we had more of. I wish we did those four classes for anyone that was even thinking about becoming a, an upper level executive leader or C-suite, because if you don't know how to make a decision, if you don't have fr rigorous frameworks for making a decision, not a best guess of it, it, you really often get promoted beyond your capabilities. Ben, thank you so much. Uh, Jennifer, a lot of great tips there as well. I'm going to start, I really am going to start uh, chopping all these office hours up into a blog post just to disseminate this information. So much good stuff. Um, let's head to uh, Nick Hill's question. Uh, are you still here, Nick Hill? Yeah. Uh, can you guys hear me? Yeah. Uh, okay. So, uh, uh, just, uh, uh, thank you so much for the platform. Uh, you guys are really doing a good job. And I, I just appreciate it. And, uh, so this uh, transition question, let me just give you a quick uh, background and uh, I think that uh, I have gathered and uh, I can stretch it out uh, so that you guys uh, properly know what I'm trying to ask. Uh, I'm currently a second year PhD student uh, and uh, uh, so yeah, during my PhD, we, we, you guys must know that we, we do a lot of data analysis and everything and uh, along with that we do a lot of research. And so I just got, uh, I just read this article on data science. Uh, it was about like how that guy keeps uh, treating this uh, diabetes. And I got really impressed by that. And I think it was uh, a couple of months ago. And I've been uh, studying a lot and lot and lot about this. And I, uh, a couple of months ago, I finally decided like I want to move into this field. And I've been trying to upgrade my skills and legal and everything. And I've asked this question uh, to a lot of people, and very sorry if it has already been discussed. Uh, so I'm, I'm thinking about leaving my PhD uh, to go into the data science full time. Uh, but people have suggested me to do your PhD, uh, mainly because uh, if you don't do it, you really don't have anything to stand out uh, in the interview, and there's a very high chance that you won't even get the interview calls uh, back. And, and, uh, and so that's, uh, that's, that's the main, main issue. So just to recap real quick, because the audio was not coming in as uh, clear as I, I you know, was hoping it would. Should you leave your PhD to get a job? Uh, you've heard people say that without a PhD, uh, you'll be not perceived as qualified or whatever to, to get the role. Uh, if anybody heard the question better than me, please let me know. But uh, let's go straight to Nixing for, for this question and then... Uh, I'll see some uh, input from uh, Mikiko. So we'll go to Nick and then Mikiko and then uh, anybody else wants to jump in. Uh, and also, if you'd like to, uh, Nikhil, if you just want to quickly type out the actual question right there in the chat too, that way we're all clear on that. That'd be helpful. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, I mean, my just quick answer is, from what I heard of your question, hey, if you don't have a PhD, people won't call you in for interviews. I don't think that's true. I think PhDs can help, but slogging through four or five years just to get an interview, there's way more high leverage things you can do. Wrote a whole book on it, Ace the Data Science Interview, but even if you didn't read that book, just, just in general, hey, the ROI of four years, like do it because you're interested in it or you want to like deep, dive deeper. But just that's a very practical thing. There's so many better ways you can get interviews probably next month. So does, that's it. Does he, he mentioned he's in, in India. Does the advice change for somebody in India? I mean, um, the, the, is it different? Like, okay, if you're in India trying to get a job in the USA, right? Like this. hundred uh, percent. Yeah. I, I, I get that vibe. No, no, for yeah. sure. Um, there, I would say like, dude, if you got to get a master's to like immigrate, like I totally get that. That's what my, yeah. my dad did, you know, yeah. like I understand that part. I guess my PhD, I'm thinking even past masters, you know, that, uh, you know, that that's, I think overkill, but yeah, okay. get a master's. No so yeah, clarifying here, he's a PhD student in Canada, so he's already already here. So um, awesome. Uh, uh, let's go to Makigo then Kostib. Um. Okay, so I, I, let me touch on two points, and then I'm yeah. just going to end that answer because honestly, uh, I didn't go the PhD route. I didn't go the master's route. I graduated with like a two point four in anthropology. So, um, I am literally probably one of the least educated people on this call, like right now. I actually, I think for sure I am maybe one of the least educated people on this call. Definitely one of the smartest though, if not the. No, but like, uh, so a couple of things, one, um, it's funny, my partner who's Indian and I am Japanese, we talk about this a lot. Uh, we hear a lot of pressure from our Asian families about you need to do X, Y, Z. I'm not saying that's where the pressure is coming for you necessarily, but things, for example, like they were telling him, if you don't have a full-time job, no one's going to want to look at you or marry you or things like that. You know, those things, right? Um, I would say, uh, you know, as well-meaning as families can be and as families and friends in those communities, especially if you're first or second generation uh, immigrant, uh, sometimes they they over-index on what has worked for them in the past, or they see these like common indicators of success. And the thing is, like, there's probably a lot of PhD students who have data science jobs who honestly probably could have still gotten those jobs without the data science because they are curious, they're hardworking, they are good at leveraging resources to solve problems. Like, it's it's one of these things like if someone gets into harvard does that make them automatically better than someone who goes to cal poly or whatever right that's not really the case sometimes it's just they're selecting on the traits that people have who would have been successful anyway right so i would say first off we just it's it's good to just sometimes uh take a step back and understand where this advice is coming from and also what are the assumptions that are driving that device or that advice, it's it's a super important skill, like in data science anyway. If you see a result, can you sort of break down what is driving that result? So if you see a difference in a campaign or in a model prediction, um, can you understand what's feeding that? And a lot of times we carry these these models of operation from our families and friends that uh, are well-meaning, but they're ultimately kind of damaging to one's social and mental and economic and health and all that. Uh, you know, yeah. So the second part is uh, if you're 
being paid for, you know, the internship and if it has a, if there's a visa situation, I definitely wouldn't just quit it to like go get a job. It's very, very competitive. Uh, the way I look at it is that they're paying you to study in Canada, from what it seemed like. You could probably utilize that time to actually get yourself really prepared and to interview around because it's probably a little bit, a lot more interesting to say I'm currently in a PhD program and I'm thinking of ways to sort of apply that skill set and all that versus um, I just left my PhD problem uh, and I have 90 days or whatever before I have to leave the country. Please, please, please give me a job. Um, so I'm going to leave it to, I, I, I'm not, yeah. So I think other people can speak to that, but I would just say, don't ever assume that a degree will get you a job that has been proven to be false the last 20 years, unless it's something very, very specific and research oriented, like a job at Google brain for which it seems like, honestly, that is like the de facto sort of requirement. And that's because they're basically getting paid to do very cool research. So not different from what you do in a PhD program. Let's go to Co-Step then, Jennifer. So the thing that I see a lot happening, and I've seen it happen to a lot of friends of mine, um, uh, and it's basically this idea of, and, and I reckon it's confirmation bias, right? It's positive attribution bias in the sense that we see successful people in the field with PhDs, but we don't see the number of people who have done PhDs that then don't actually convert that into a, you know, world-beating career in that field, you know? So, so there, there is this positive attribution bias that we need to really be careful about. Um, so you've got to really question what's, and, and the, the words that Nick used is actually spot on ROI. What's the return on investment on any degree that you do? Anything that, especially if you're paying for it. Now, I understand you're getting a stipend for this PhD, so that, that changes things a little bit, but let's re re remember that your investment in that is your time. Right, a PhD is four years. Now, a couple of years ago, I was assessing whether I wanted to go into a PhD or I wanted to do a master's. And I actually found that really what I was looking for was that little bit of education that I struggled to teach myself because of the way that I learn. Right. So I found that a one year master's was enough to push that through and get the amount of uh, research that we did in that one year master's was enough to give me those blanks that I needed to fill my career to get to where I wanted to be, right? Um, to put me on the track that I wanted to go on. Um, and it was, to my mind, it may not be the right master's degree for everybody, but that one year won me a year and a half that I would have otherwise spent at a couple of other universities, right? That year and a half to me is, I can work for a year and a half, save for a year and a half, but like invest in a property sooner, I can invest in other things sooner. So financially it's a much, more sound decisions so you've got to consider where in life you're at and whether you actually want to do a master's or a phd so that's that's one side of things the other side of things is and i see this a lot with phds is um a lot of them do graduate and end up overqualified and underexperienced. um and i see this a lot in australia where we have a system where you can finish a bachelor's of uh engineering or four year any any four-year science or engineering degree that has an honors component to it uh, you can go straight into a PhD. Now, I don't know what it's like in Canada and USA, um, but basically we end up with loads of people, particularly, and I see this with BSc Physics, BE um, Aeronautics, uh, where there's not a huge job market and they jump into doing a PhD. Then they come out the other side three, four years later, love what they were doing, but the transition into industry is extremely difficult because companies can't justify paying them what you would expect a postdoc to receive because they've lacked that experience 
experience working in the field. So I, I kind of subscribe to an old school model of do a PhD once you've already gathered a, an, an, an element of expertise in an area, uh, because you work out a lot of your problems in the field as opposed to, uh, you know, necessarily while doing a PhD. But if your reason for doing a PhD is, hey, I want to spend and dedicate time researching this field because this is amazing to me, that's worth the investment. So your return is different. It's a, it's a personal satisfaction return, right? Um, so you really got to assess whether the course you're doing and the time you're spending is actually getting you what you want to get. So in that sense, if leaving the PhD stream and walking away with a master's because it's going to get you to the field you want to work in sooner, maybe that's the right call to make. So take some time to really iron out the investment that you're putting, value your time, value your money, value your effort, um, and really try to understand down to the bare bones why you're doing what you're doing, right? Like start with why. Like that's that's entirely what any major career advice role tells you. Start with why you're doing what you're doing. And then you can figure out the pieces into how you get there. Um, and yeah, absolutely. I agree with everything that like Makiko and Nick and everyone before me said is we overfit on this idea that education is important. Um, what was that? What was that quote that you see flying around? I don't know if it's Elon Musk or someone else that they've attributed to Musk now, but don't confuse schooling with education. Um, I don't think particularly in the data science field, particularly in the software field where these skills are accessible and people can learn them through multiple pathways. I don't think that educational qualifications is as much of a barrier to entry than say in the accounting field where you need to be a chartered accountant or you know, in other fields where obviously being a doctor, you can't go and learn that off Udemy, right? But uh, let's be real, you can do this another way. So let's not confuse education and schooling. Um, that's all I would say. Uh, excellent, excellent advice. Thank you so much, Costa. Yeah, that was uh, Mark Twain. I never let schooling get in the way of my education. Uh, Jennifer, go for it. Um, so I would actually agree with a lot of what has been said, and I'm going to give you the flip side. Um, because my husband got his PhD, he went straight through and got it. It opened a lot of doors. Um, for both his initial career and a midlife transition into teaching at a university. So you've got to know very clearly what you want. Is it necessary? Within his field, yeah, that was necessary for where he wanted to be at inside a company like Intel and teaching at a university. Those are things that get your foot in the door and get you the interview. There's a lot of work out there where it's just not. And so you've got to know what you want to be doing with the degree. Um, I'm actually a real proponent right now of get the degrees while you can. Um, I started an MBA program shortly after college and I did not finish it. I'm going back now. I really wish I had done that earlier because it's, it's a certificate and and it's, it's something that I wish I didn't have to do at the same time as, as a full-time job. Um, so I'll, I'll, put in a, I'll put in a score for that one. But um, when it comes down to it, what is the reason for the degree is going to be up to you. Excellent. Excellent tips there. Uh, Jennifer, let's go to Greg. I was, uh, I was just thinking um, about what Mikiko said. It's, it's, it's real. The whole 90-day thing, it kind of struck a chord with me because I was there at some point too. Um, I was an international student and I actually got lucky. Um, 
I think I, I spoke about that Harper when when I was invited to your podcast. Is mm. uh, I was lucky through an unfortunate event with my home country Haiti, which is the earthquake. And because of the earthquake, United States, um, because I was already inside of that 90 day, hey, find something. And I had a master's degree, find something or after 90 days you get, you're out. And after the earthquake, the United States was like, hey, these guys who are here, they don't have a place to go home. Let's just give them a, a way to, to stay with a work permit. So um, there's no clear. So out of this strategy, you have this lucky thing that got me into the corporate world in America. So I was pretty lucky. And uh, it's tough. There's no right way. Um, you just have to push your luck and, and look for the next opportunity and understand, um, know what you want first and go for it and uh, try different ways to get there. Uh, to Jennifer's point, it's, it's really uh, true. You have to know what you want. Sometimes PhD is the right way. People use PhD to stay longer in the United States. I've seen people do that. Um, and then they feel stuck because they're not interested in the research part that comes with PhD most of the time. Uh, but, you know, you have to really uh, make a strategic decision and stick with it and don't think that there's only one way to get to that uh, end point. Um, you should try different things and stay ready and uh, ready to jump to the next opportunity. So uh, thanks for that reminder, Mikiko. It's, uh, it's great. And I feel the U.S. would have been at a complete loss if you had left. So I'm glad that we got to keep you, Greg. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, that's the thing, right? Like, I think the, I feel like, so I feel like what's glorified is making, like, big decisions and, like, making the jump and all this other stuff. Like, you see it in a lot of times in the media, like, the entrepreneur who, um, uh, quit his job and then was starving on the streets and then was working on the startup. I mean, that was actually the story of Box, kind of, in a way. Um, I remember when I was like hearing the Box CEO, he talked about living on, well, his floor um, and he top ramen in a one bedroom apartment, right? But um, I feel like what you see, what people who are really successful, especially navigating very uncertain situations, what they do is they just don't cut off their options. I feel like that's that's really, really critical is if you can keep your options open and you can kind of keep leverage, that's really the best sweet spot, sweet spot to be. So if you're not interested in your PhD program, like keep going with it, but you use that time um, somehow to, to network, to build up projects, to do, do all that other stuff. Um, you know, I would say just don't sort of burn the boat until you 100% know what you're doing. Right. So uh, last year or whatever, I, quit my job at Teladoc in the middle of the pandemic and my family was furious like I you know it's funny I switched my job status on Sunday night because I'm like no one is gonna know I was too cowardly to my parents but I was like no one's gonna know no one's gonna see it and that ended up being the most liked status of my LinkedIn profile ever so everyone found out including all my mom's friends including some of the aunties they all found out um, that I quit my job to go work on this real estate tech startup, uh, you know, which that's okay. Then I didn't work out and that's okay. I was able to find another job, but the reason I was able to make, take that informed risk taking and decision-making. Yeah. I know the aunties, right? Like oh, they're brutal. And, and the second and third cousins, like you think they're your homies and then, and then they squeal. 
And then they show them your Instagram posts and then it's all game over once they find it the is. Instagram or, you know, or the LinkedIn in our case, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's pretty much what happened. Uh, so, but the reason I was able to make such an, what seemed on the outside, like an extreme decision, especially when people were losing their jobs left and right from startups, like, you know, like Twitter, I think had uh, let go of a bunch of people, um, some other companies, right. Was that when I, the month I quit, I had, I had five or six final round offers or uh, final round interviews and offers for data scientist roles. So I'm like, okay, I know I can kind of get this locked down. Um, I had a bunch of money in the bank and I'm also an American citizen. So I didn't have to worry about, you know, being pulled out of the country. Um, so when you see people making these like big decisions, you don't realize how much like capital and privilege they have behind them to be able to make those decisions and take those risks. Um, you know, so that's something that is like really, really important. Um, in most of my jobs, I, even when I hated them, I stayed with them. I went to school, uh, I would go to school at night or whatever to boot camp. You know, I keep bringing in money. It was hard, but I had to do that because realistically, I was not in that position of the entrepreneur that could like go quit their job, go do a startup, know I could raise funding and stay in the country, right? So what I would say is that rather than thinking of decisions or options like as an A or B, try to see how you can really blend them and mitigate your risk as much as possible. Um, it's not the sexy approach, but it's the real honest to God, you know, ground truth is really smart, like really, really smart entrepreneurs, they risk mitigate as much as possible in various ways, you know? And the other part too, right, is for a data scientist gig. And like, you know, Nick could definitely talk about this. One of the ways to figure out if you really like it is building projects and shopping it around, like shop that experience. You know, if people are biting for it, then maybe that's a good indicator. But if they're not, then maybe that's not the right approach is quitting your PhD to go work on that. You know, you need to have more data. You need to have more information to really be able to make these decisions. But the beautiful part is not cutting off your options gives you more time to make these decisions and to gather data. So. Excellent tips. Thank you very much. Uh, let's go to Costa, then Nick. Yeah, something that like, just kind of echoing what Makiko was saying, something that a lot of people don't experience until they experience it or just cannot comprehend until they experience it is the safety of being in a country where you permanently have the right to work and the right to live, right? Like, I went to the UK and as an Australian citizen in the UK, that's not really like theoretically, that's not such a big deal, right? Because it's quite easy for an Australian citizen to get a, a permission to stay in the UK. But I'll be honest, it was way like there was an emotional co component to it that I'd never expected when I moved there, right? There was an emotional component to I don't have the right to be here the same as a lot of other people. And immigrants will face that. People moving to other countries will face that. Um, so you've got to be really, really clear on your, on literally why you're doing what you're doing and what your goal is, right? Because um, there's going to be that factor as well, unless you have the privilege of being, you know, of having those opportunities in your home country. Um, right now, I'm lucky enough to have great opportunities in Australia, so I, I can do that quite safely. But I just got to appreciate what a lot of a lot of people go through in this process, and there is that burden. Be really real about that burden on you as well. 
because um, that is another form of effort that you're investing, right? The emotional effort to committing to what you're doing. And that takes energy and that takes time, right? Um, so yeah, uh, absolutely what Makiko is saying. Factor in all of those things and really come up with a map that can keep your doors as open as possible. Um, and yeah, work out the decision as opposed to just jumping into it. Uh, you're a data guy, clearly. Start working on the data, right? Nick, go for it. Uh, what I really liked and what Mihiko said was two things. Uh, that whole founding story about the box thing. Oh my God, half the founding stories are made up, right? Like even, even that one, I'm not sure because I've seen from the little sample size I've seen and like people are not being dishonest about it. It's, it's just sort of like one guy told me like he crashed on all these couches, right? And like it, it becomes, if someone repeats that story too many times, it's almost like, wow, like you didn't have to crash on that many couches, right? Like you didn't have to eat ramen. Um, and, and guys, trust me, if I make it, I'm gonna tell them all how I'm in my mom's basement right now, but like low key, I'm here just because I don't want to be an SF during COVID or whatever. But like, you know, I tell people like, yo, I was, I was in my mom's basement writing the book for a year. And like, you know, I don't know, man, half this founding stories are crazy and kind of not true. And same way at my last uh, company, I liked my boss uh, or the CEO, and he's a great entrepreneur, VC backed, all about high risk, high reward. But he got his money first from like doing uh, smaller businesses that he, he, he in the dot-com boom of 99, he did something in his college dorm room. He was able to flip for maybe, let's say a million dollars, which is enough to like sustain a whole lifestyle, you know, when you hit that kind of money at 22, 23. And I think a lot of people in crypto can do it now, but they wouldn't say like, oh, I had a million dollars and I got to do it uh, that way. So I don't know these founding stories, man. Like they, they're so confusing to hear. And I'm more, more and more. I'm like, these are not true. And even my founding story is gonna be like, yo, I was hella bootstrapped and I had no money. But realistically, I have money for my book, and I live at my parents' house. But I wouldn't, you know, by choice to save money. Because, because actually, what uh, you said also, I, I just love what you said so much that I'm like, it, it rang so many bells. The other thing was, entrepreneurs are like seen as risk takers, but actually they're risk mitigators. Like I've seen that so much. Like it's not about taking wild risk. It's about taking like actually really intelligent risks, which includes a lot of risk mitigation, um, which people don't talk about. Right. So. Yeah. Like, isn't that like the, the story from Adam Grant's book originals? Uh, he's talking about that. He was about to invest in Warby Parker, but didn't because the founders weren't all in and given up everything to do this thing. But they're mitigating risk. They're, they're being smart about it. Um, all right. Any other comments or questions? Uh, Nikhil, hopefully you are good with all that advice. There's a lot there. Um, and that's one hell of a way to kick off the new year, man. That was amazing. Uh, dope, dope session. Thank you guys so much. I absolutely love hosting these things. Uh, this is a lot of fun. We'll keep it going this year, every single Friday. Um, I'm going to start doing a better job of, trying to unlock the wisdom in here by just writing more about uh, what we got, you know, going on and, and the questions. Um, so hold me accountable to it. You know, if you guys don't see a blog post from me a week, recapping what's going on in the office hours, uh, get on my ass. Um, but uh, we've got a busy, busy month this month. So I'll have to start in February. <laughs> so thanks guys for hanging out. Uh, be sure to tune into the podcast, release an episode with uh, Jonathan Rice and tell talking all about blockchain in that episode. Um, something that uh, uh, I've been really interested in, but, you know, not putting enough time into, um, but we had a great conversation. Uh, part one, 
of a two-part conversation. I still need to get him back onto the show. If you don't know Jonathan Reichentel, he's uh, he's done a bunch of courses on LinkedIn learning all about like blockchain, Web3, NFTs, and, and things like that. Uh, so he's really, uh, really big, big uh, I guess, I don't know, name in space or, or educator in the space. So check that out. Uh, also, this coming Wednesday, uh, second uh, episode in the series for standardizing the experiment. Uh, second of eight for a series that i'm doing with comet so it's check it out there's the uh uh session one is up on youtube as well so check all that stuff out guys uh that's it for today thanks so much for tuning in happy new year everyone thank you for spending all this time with me appreciate having all you guys here uh great questions great discussions y'all take care have a good rest of the week and remember you got one life on this planet why not try to do something big cheers everyone